Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Tell Me Tales podcast. Thanks for joining me for another week. Thanks for the download. Thanks for showing uh, your support for the show. Hopefully, you get something out of this conversation and it keeps you company if you're out there running, or um, yeah, it gives you a bit of an insight into somebody else's story and somebody else's life, which I think it will definitely do this week. This week's conversation is with Pat Smith, and um, yeah, it's quite heavy. If you're a kid, turn it off now. You probably don't need to listen to this if you're under 16 years old. Um, Pretty adult themes in there, pretty heavy stories about drug use, pretty heavy stories about the drug world and uh, what happens within the drug world and how you can be an elite runner before entering that world and and afterwards and those addictive personalities that lead you down that road and uh, into that world. I was very apprehensive about recording this show and uh, Pat was as well. We've been speaking since Feb so it wasn't just a... Um, a show that we recorded just off the top of our heads and kind of got together. We've been having conversations for a while and we both felt the time was right. I wasn't putting pressure on him. He wasn't putting pressure on me to come on, but I really thought there was something in sharing this story and, um, yeah, supporting Pat in, in being a male and talk about it, talking about the struggles he's had in life. And I think when someone comes to you and uh, wants to do that... Um, I think it's going to help them out a lot in the long run, and hopefully you guys do as well. Uh, Pat shares his story about his junior days, a pretty elite national level tennis player, kind of the hard road that he had through there, and then his involvement in sport. You know, he's an 817 guy. He's represented Australia at the Melbourne World Challenge, was one of our runners there, uh, against some pretty handy Kenyans and Africans and Ethiopians and all that stuff. And then, yeah, entered the drug world I guess and uh, things changed pretty dramatically in Pat's life and now he's he's on the other side of it and hopefully he's on the other side of it for a while and yeah at no means did I want to put this show out to celebrate that Pat's been in that world and is now out of it because I definitely don't think you guys know my views about society and what I value in life you've heard me talk enough on this podcast about what's important to me and that world definitely isn't isn't important to me at all but I thought there was a story there and a man needed to tell his story and I thought I could support him in telling his story. If it's not your cup of tea, turn it off. Um, if yeah, if you want to reach out to Pat afterwards, he, he lists his handles and stuff there, but 
Yeah, uh, enjoy, I guess, this story with Pat Smith. It's an interesting Tell Me Your Tales. It goes for just over an hour 15 and it goes all over the place into a world and into some stories that are, are new to me. So thanks, guys. Um, enjoy. Okay, Pat Smith, welcome to Tell Me A Tales podcast. Thanks for giving up a bit of time on a Saturday afternoon after a busy morning and day at work. Uh, cheers, mate. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on board. Been a busy day in the uh, cafe industry, right? Yeah, no, not not a busy day for me. I'm, I'm, as anyone that knows me, I love an early finish, so just a little four-and-a-half-hour shift today, so that works out well for me. Yeah, nice. And where are we talking to you from today? Where are you, Hobart? No, just in Lonnie. Yeah, Lonnie. home. I wasn't so sure. It's... Yeah, yeah, because last time I uh, saw you, we were just talking about off-air, was when you smashed me at Run the Bridge in January this year. I remember running down the bridge with you, and then I reckon you put in about 35 seconds into me in those last two Ks. You were flying that day. Yeah, I don't know about 35 seconds. What did you end up running? You were 31.20? Yeah, you? <laughs> I think, yeah, 15 or somewhere like that. Did you, you dipped yeah. under? Did you dip under 31? Yeah. I think I was 30, 58 or something. So, you know, you, yeah. you had me in sight, mate. Any any longer and you would have had me, I was starting to tire real bad. Oh, no, I was gone at 8K. It felt like 35 seconds. I was just hanging on for dear life. And then when we had to do that U-turn at like 9.5K, and, yeah, that wasn't much fun at all. Yeah, I kept looking at the, the watch, and I know Josh, Josh had been, his marathon trainer, he'd been running earlier. And um, as I turned that corner, he was getting that much closer to me. And I reckon if, if that last hill had been 50 metres longer, he, he would have had me because I was – you just couldn't see when it was going to give you the U-turn. It just kept going up and up, and, yeah, no, I wasn't enjoy – I didn't enjoy that last K. That yeah. was, uh, it should have been – should have been a 9K race for me. <laughs> I said that same thing to him. I'm like, before the race, if you go past me, I've had a bad day and I could hear these footsteps coming up, up at me at 9K and sure enough, it was just him floating past yeah. me after doing about 20K that morning. Nah, do you reckon you'll do it again uh, next year? Oh, I think so. It's a good race. It's well organised yeah. and stuff. But the town I live in, we have no hills. Like literally there's not one hill within like yeah. uh, 25K. So I just get kind of no um, hill strength throughout the – um, just the easy jogs or hill reps or long runs, just everything's on the flat. So when I go down there to race that course, it just busted me up big time and just um, just feels super weak and it just takes its toll a bit. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I think we're, 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 I probably should train a little bit more hills because everything in Launceston's um, hilly. Has it, have you ever been down to Lonnie? Yeah, I have done the Launceston yeah. 10 maybe three That's times. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I mean there's plenty of hills around here. So um, if I do it next year, I'll, I'll probably have to do a little bit more hill training because – yeah, well, about 3K in, we go up Rosny, and that, that ruined me. I, I just did not, even driving in, let you see how steep it is, but when you run it, it's just so much worse. Um, yeah, that, that killed me. So I think this time around, if I have a crack at it, I'll, I'll definitely do something hill-specific because uh, I'm sure it would definitely help. Yeah, you're right. And that was the one to get onto the bridge, wasn't it? Like it just kept That's going right. and going, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it was uh, the never-ending hill. You look at your watch and it's telling you you're going like 335k pace and you're, and you're uh, yeah, just getting depressed, oh, as. Yeah, no, no, I saw, um, I think it was Jack Rayner uploaded on Strava and he, he averaged 320s up that segment and I was just thinking, geez, like, those boys, like, that's, that'd be like equivalent of like 250, 255 pace mm. on the flat, you'd have to say, because it was, yeah, it's a, a nasty gradient. I think guys on bikes would find that hard. Tassie do a good job of that, though, don't they? Putting on good races like that one in Launceston 10 in your hometown and the Bernie 10. Like, have you ran most of them? 
Yeah, I haven't I haven't done Lonnie for quite a few years, and I haven't done Bernie since about 08. So I definitely, if I can sort of get myself on track and and enjoy it, I, I'd like to do all three um, next year. Because yeah, they just they're just well run and just a, a nice community day and the weather's usually good and i mean especially lonnie's a, a flat fast course and then bernie's got that little bit of a headwind usually on the way back but um i mean even with the bridge race what dave mcneil broke 29 minutes last year so yeah, all say. three are quick you know fast courses and they're all all a bit different which is nice you want that you don't just want that same sort of you know flat course you want something with a hill or a downhill and yeah just just three really good spots good spots of tassie really and then i think you've got a good uh like next kind of step down races as well, like the City to Casino and Point to Pinnacle, like races that um, locals can actually win rather than just get beaten by these big dogs that come in town into town for the weekend. Yeah, that's right. All those all those pro runners just come down for the uh, for the checkbook and it leaves Cash that guys. Yeah, it makes us look pretty average uh, when they put you know thirty seconds to a minute in us over a uh, you know thirty minute race. But yeah, I, I haven't done the the full um, City to Casino. I won the seven k a few years ago. Um, and I really enjoyed that because you start at the bottom of this hill and once you sort of get over that first little hill um, and then up into Sandy Bay, it's all downhill. So that was a good run. Um, and then uh, Point to Pinnacle, that, that doesn't interest me in the slightest. Um, <laughs> any, anything over any, anything over 5K and I'm sort of, yeah, I'm hitting I'm hitting off button to be honest, mate. So I've got got a few mates, um, Joshy Harris and Dylan that have done it and, and Dougie Hammerlock and yeah, a lot of admiration for those blokes because, um, yeah, racing 80 minutes plus uphill doesn't doesn't interest me in the slightest. Doesn't float your boat, yeah. Hey, mate, do you mind? Uh, we just had a massive four-minute conversation about a few Tasmanian races, but we better <laughs> let the listeners know who you are and what you're all about. So I always get the guests to introduce themselves. So um, over to you. Take that however way you want to. Yeah, cheers, mate. Um, yeah, I guess uh, Pat Smith or, or Patty Smith or, or Patrick, whatever you, however many people know me, Um yeah, I guess I'm, I'm 26. I've done athletics on and off since I was about 16 after switching over from tennis. Um, yeah, I, I love my running and, um, you know, I've sort of found myself just mixed up with, you know, a lot of um, personal issues, a lot of, of drug use and, and depression and, and things like that. And I've sort of just wanted to talk to talk to yourself, mate, and just sort of get off the chest and get it out in the open and, and just sort of, I guess, talk about where I sort of see myself heading now and, and um yeah just sort of have a bit of a chat and and um just sort of get my life back on track to be honest mate yeah well thanks for your time and it's an interesting one talking to someone with your experiences because it's um you're not sometimes really sure what direction to take it in and at the same time i understand how important it is for people to talk about their issues and um get it all out there and kind of i think when you're you're pretty brave kind of putting some of this stuff out to the general public and there's going to be people all over Australia and all over the world that are going to listen to this so hats off to you for that but at the same time um yeah it's an interesting one I guess with the way people support it and the way we kind of go about the conversation we've uh, been playing phone tag for a while now trying to organize this for a, for a long period of time and with the ups yeah. and downs that come with life it's been a, a bit tricky and I probably could have spoken to you I don't know, any time over the last six months and I could have possibly got a different story at any time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I sort of, I guess I didn't want to talk to you until I felt I was confident I was in the right headspace. And I mean, after running the bridge, I was and um, things were going well. But um, I guess as we talked to, you know, a little bit a little bit further, I, you sort of see, I guess, just how um, things can change quickly and, and how the mindset changes. And I just felt that if I was going to talk to you, I wanted to talk to you when I felt like I was on the on the right path that, that I could stick at it for 
you know, um, being someone, I guess, with, with a drug problem and, and being a drug addict, you sort of get yourself clean for, for four months and then, you know, you slip up and then that sort of throws you off for another two or three and then you start all over again. So I guess I just didn't really want to talk about it until I felt like I was on the right track and that I was confident that, you know, I can keep it up this time. Um, you know, there's no point chatting to you and saying I'm sorry about these things or this has happened and then next week I'm off taking drugs, you know, it just wouldn't sort of sit right with me. So, yeah, I just felt like, um, you know, we'll, we'll chat when I'm in a good headspace and, and at the moment I, I really am, so, yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's that sense of accountability in a way, isn't it? Like um, by you naming this and naming it to quite a few, uh, you know, thousand people, it's uh, going to get a few people in your corner and it's also going to give you a few people that you don't want to let down to go back to that world. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, I guess when, when these sort of things happen and, you know, you, you sort of, for a long time I shied away from it I didn't want to talk about it and you know if people asked about it or you know a lot of I had a lot of support from family and friends but you know a lot of other people that sort of would have you know with the athletics community and, and friends of friends that sort of would have thought oh you know what's going on with this guy and he's very up and down and, and I just sort of felt like I had this bit of bit of a monkey on my back and I just wanted to sort of tell it out in the open and, and say how it is and you know it, it might upset a few people but you know, if I'm trying to do the right thing and, and get myself on track, it's it's better than continuing to do the wrong thing. So, yeah. Do you reckon as men we got better at that as well, like actually getting our story out there and letting people know when you're struggling and kind of sharing more about uh, personal issues and getting them out there in the open? You st- Sorry, mate. You're Sorry, mate. Yeah, yeah, I'm still there. You just cut out. Well, I might have just cut out. But did you hear my question, mate? That's okay. I can yeah, go yeah, back and edit no. this. So if you just no, want to answer not... that question from now, I'll cut out the middle bit. Yeah, perfect. No, I think I think definitely as a society, um, there's a lot of things, especially social media and a big a big movement against depression and suicide awareness and, and speaking up about how you feel and you know, women's rights and just a whole movement of, I guess, people being a little bit more comfortable talking about their feelings and saying if you're not okay it's you know whereas a long time ago I guess in my dad's era and probably your era when you were a little bit younger um, you know it wasn't wasn't the thing to do it wasn't you know you don't talk about your feelings you just get on with it and I guess as a as a society we've seen that that doesn't work and you know unless you're actively talking about it or you're seeking help these things go unnoticed um, you know you tend not to get better so yeah definitely a, a movement to support that sort of um, that cause. Mm. And you know, I was just when I was talking to Andy Allison the other week, like the whole Movember movement, and um, I know they were down at Point to Pinnacle doing like the Mobro section, and kind of all these new initiatives that have started off. It's um, must be very, I guess, uh, not so much rewarding, but um, very encouraging for you to know there's a lot of people to support you in this situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I'm very lucky. I mean, from a family side of things, I've had I've had more support probably probably than I've deserved, to be honest, mate. Um, but mm. also a lot of support from from really close friends um, and and mates and and yeah, other people that are just acquaintances. And and yeah, when you know that you know you can come out and talk about something and, and there's someone there to support you, it does make you feel a little bit more confident about speaking up about it, and you, you don't feel like you're going to get ridiculed or you know shamed or anything like that. So yeah, definitely helpful. Take me back to the start with the sport, mate. So you touched on, uh, you know, playing tennis at a pretty high level and then the transition over to running. So obviously you're a pretty gifted individual in uh, more than one sport. Yeah, I mean, I'll, tennis was probably probably my first love, um, tennis and basketball. I, I did athletics on and off through primary school. Uh, I think I did one season of Lilaths, but tennis was sort of the first sport I, I took seriously. So probably from 
about 11 years old to I was about 15. I was, I was fairly full on, so um, a lot of lessons, um, a lot of um, tournaments and squads and all that sort of thing. And, yeah, I really loved my tennis, but there was, I guess, um, you know, a few things that went on within tennis when I was younger that just sort of um, turned me against it. I ended up hating tennis for a while. Um, I'm actually a tennis coach now, so it's changed. So I'm, I'm back sort of loving it. But, yeah, once once things with tennis sort of started to go downhill, I made the switch to athletics at about can 16. I, can I stop you there, mate, only because I've, uh, I've read Agassiz's book and just the way he was oh. brought up in um, – brought up in the tennis world and just how kind of cutthroat and stuff it is. What do you mean that a couple of things really turned you off it? Yeah, um, I mean, I was never pressured in the same way that he was. You had a lot of family pressure and, and that sort of thing. For me, um, growing up within the sport, like I played school tennis at a young age and, and I've always been someone, I guess, it's pretty, a little bit emotional maybe. I, I wear my heart on my sleeve and, you know, I, was, I wasn't vocally, um, you know, aggressive or anything like that, but I was hard on myself and, I remember once I was playing school tennis and um, I lost a really tight match to the, the number one player at the other school and the PA teacher, you know, came up and told my parents that, you know, why can't Pat be more like this other kid who was, you know, the, the number two player, I won't name names. And, you know, I remember saying to mum and dad, like, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years old, I don't even know who I am and, and this PA teacher is telling me to be more like someone else. You know, I found that quite quite hurtful and then um, continuing to play the sport, um yeah, I, I sort of grew up, I guess, playing against kids who are a little bit older than me and, and I was sort of a little bit better than the kids my age, so I'd play against the older ones and when you're up and coming in a sport and you're someone, I guess, that wears your heart in your sleeve and, you know, you give your best, um, that can sort of either people, uh, you know, with you or against you and I had a, quite a fair bit of bullying in tennis. Um, got to the point where I actually, um, yeah, that we had a state squad, um, eight kids in the north, eight kids in the south and the seven other kids in the north, one of them being my best friend at the time and my doubles partner, all said they wouldn't they wouldn't play in the squad if I was in it. Um, you know that that really hurt, yeah. and I, I tried, yeah, tried to try to speak to my coach about it at the time. Um, he was the the state coach and also my private coach, and he you know he actually said to me and mum and dad, it's nothing that I've done. It's just that these particular kids don't like you and they won't participate in the squad if if you're in it. And, you know when that's your best friend and your doubles partner and you have to end up travelling down to Hobart twice a week, you know, five-hour return trip plus the squad. You know, you start to feel, I guess, a little bit, you know, is it, you know, what's wrong with me? Why don't people like me? And and that was really tough to take. I mean, I was only I was only about 14 at the time, and and that hurt a lot. And yeah, sort of um, going to tournaments and and playing, and it's it's pretty cutthroat at, at a national sort of level. And you know, you, you don't lose. I'm oh, sorry, you don't win. And you know, tennis is one of those sports where there's only one winner and one loser, so you know it's a little bit, a little bit hard to take. And um, you know, I get I get sort of 40, 50 kids sort of booing me, and you know, and these are kids that I'm meant to be going away on the same team as to to represent the state, and they're cheering for a kid they haven't even met. You know, so I think that really um, set me on like the path, I guess, of feeling like I, I don't live up, and and that this sort of pressure I put on myself probably stemmed from that. Yeah, what do you put that down to? Like, did you have obviously issues with those kids, or a bit of tension, or like, why were they ganging up on you? Yeah, I mean, you probably have to ask them, I guess, yeah. mate. But, but um, I mean, we had a, a kid that I actually played against that was being billeted by them, and um, I played a tournament in Hobart, and I was beating this kid. I think I won first set six six three, and I was five two up in the second, and all the kids came along and the booing, and that ended up losing in a tight three setter, and played him in another tournament up north uh, a week later, late, late at night, and there was no one watching, and I beat him 11-3. So it just sort of, I guess, shows that, you know, how much 
the pressure of tennis can get to you. And um, this this time, I ended up um, speaking to mum about it and and just sort of saying, you know, it just shows how much you know pressures around and and how much worse I play when I've got this sort of these people that are booing me and, and stuff. And the kid actually asked them why they uh, bully me. And the reasons they came up with was, was that I wore my hat back to front and I had the same racket as Leighton Hewitt. So, yeah, Bit it's things like tall that. Tall poppy syndrome, just wanted to cut you down kind of thing. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, I, they were a little bit older than me and they're sort of, I guess, you know, being being the age I was, I was very intense, you know, sort of first to get there, last to leave. And I guess they were a little bit more casual about it. And, you know, that that's just not the way I go about things. I, and I can understand that rubs people the wrong way if you're, if you're a little bit too intense or, or passionate. But certainly the, the bullying and the, and the segregation and, you know, just the, the, the words that were said to me, I, I don't think any of my behaviour deserved that. Um, and, yeah, that that's, that's sort of the only reasons that they, they had stuff against me. Um, yeah. Yeah, right. And then the transition to running, talk us through that, like pretty late in your, in your upbringing. Yeah, yeah. So about sixteen, um, I remember I was driving with mum on the way home from a tournament, um, and yeah, I'd been starting to dabble in, in doing little runs here and there and doing LAC, and she sort of said, you know, would you would you be interested in, you know, would you want to do do running instead of tennis? And I just had enough with with tennis and what was going on within it, and and just it felt like an escape to get away from it, and I did enjoy running, and and then yeah, I sort of just at sixteen decided I'm going to try and have a crack at this and, and try and do, I guess, what I wanted out of tennis with athletics. Yeah. Um, can you remember your first, like, hard training session you did or the first race when you were kind of 16 there? Yeah, I think uh, I did something with um, Frank Knott. He's a, uh, a coach for North Launceston. He's an alderman, I think, or he, he was. And um, I got picked up in a TIS talent search and um, started training with Frank Knott. And, yeah, I, I struggled to begin with. I, I still hadn't started growing. Like, I'm, I'm pretty tall now, but back mm. then I was I was a bit of a short ass. And, um, yeah, I wasn't doing a lot of Ks or anything, so it really took me a while um, to, to get going. I was, I was doing a lot of LACs and stuff like that. And you got Joshy Harris who was running three-minute Ks when he was, like, 16, and here I am trying to hold 330s and that sort of thing, you know, you know, only a year younger. Um, so it definitely took me a long time to adjust to, to athletics. Yeah, but that's probably a good thing, isn't it? Like, just you didn't come in and smash everyone first up. It's kind of you had to grind away and you had to work hard and sacrifice and commit to being a bit consistent with the training. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it certainly made, makes you want it more when you, um, you know, you, you're not sort of beating everyone. Um, you know, I certainly wasn't. I was, I think I did Simmons Plains. It was like um, a 6K cross country and, like, I had high hopes myself, hoping that I'd make the state team that year. I think I ended up coming seventh or eighth which was, you know, a little bit demoralising to me. Like, I'm probably a little bit, yeah, put a bit of pressure on myself and I sort of thought I can just make the switch and come over and come out and get a medal or, you know, get top five and make the state team. But to come eighth, it sort of gave me something to work towards that next year, um, you know, yeah. Can you remember some of your early PBs? Because I'll, I'll let the listeners know in a second what your PBs are at the moment, but I always enjoy hearing the stories of people who weren't naturally fast, didn't come through a little athletics and actually have, um, you know, these kind of pretty mediocre uh, first, second season personal best from back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So early on, I think um, I did a Northern Champs and um, I think I ended up running something like it was for 3K. It was like 1040 or something. So what's that? It's, it's a touch over 330. So it wasn't great. And yeah. I think my 800 was about 
220 and my 1500 was just under five minutes, I think. Yeah, nothing flash at all, mate. Yeah, you've Very done well. I remember my first season, I was, um, yeah, 440 was my first ever race in a 1500 and then maybe like 956 for the 3K. So you were starting from further back than I was and uh, you've got me covered, I think, now over a lot of those short distances. So I guess just to give the listeners some context, though, we'll just run through some of your uh, PBs. Do you know them? Yeah, so I think um, 800s, 157, I, I probably shouldn't claim it as a PB, but I did it in the state champs, 1500, so the last, I don't really race many eights, mate, but yeah, the last 800 of that was, was 157. I think Jimmy Hanson would have been about 155, so, um, so that's my 800. 1500, I think is 352.06 or something. Yeah, that's sold off that 800. Yeah, um, so that, I, was, I was happy with that. Um, I, I'd like to get it down a little bit lower, but um, yeah, three three Ks, eight seventeen. Um, so that was when I won state champs a couple of years back with um, Josh and and Jimmy. Uh, that was a, that was a good day for me that day. Like based off what we'd done, um, and it was a really slow first K. I think we went through the first K in about two fifty or something. So um, yeah, that was that was that's probably my my favourite distance. I reckon three K. Two um, two pop- big names to take down as well. Yeah, I was happy with that because I, I mean they're both really close mates of mine, and I've, I've had sort of had, they've had the better of me quite a few, few times. So I was happy to get the get the stick over them that day. Um, they've both ran a lot quicker since, so um, I have to try and catch back up. Mm. Um, five five k, I think I did it at Briggs. Um, that was fourteen twenty three, um, which yeah, once again like it's, it's it's you know it's not super quick, but considering I guess the training I've done and stuff. It's not a bad time. Um, and then 10, I think it's 30, 58 at Runner Bridge. Yeah, right. On a pretty, pretty hilly course, what we've already kind of spoken about. Hey, did you, I reckon I can remember you running the Melbourne World Challenge one year as well. Did you run in that one? Uh, I don't think so. Melbourne, is that, was that like, a, is it a road race, is it? No, like the Melbourne Track Classic or was oh, that, yeah. I think it was called the Melbourne Track Classic then, maybe not yeah. the Melbourne World Challenge. Yeah, no, that was that was a disappointing day. I think me and Josh were both both pretty upset. Um, you know, we off off Briggs we qualified to do that. Um so went in high hopes of running maybe like a, a fourteen fifteen or something like that. But um yeah, in hindsight we looked back and we probably just dropped off our training a bit much and I think I ran fourteen forty four and Josh was fourteen forty five or something. So bit embarrassing because you've got these guys like Gregson and a few other guys that are, you know, running thirteen forty and, and you're a minute behind. <laughs> That's um, right. Was, Him and Brenton Rowe ran that night, didn't they? I'm trying to think who won it. I remember yeah. watching you guys in the stand and just like, because I maybe did it the year after or two years after, same thing, went to Briggs and ran a PB and then um, qualified for that. And then you pretty much run and try not to come last in that race. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, I think, no, no offense to Joshy, but I think I think he, oh, I think we might have been, yeah, second last and last. So it was good just to beat him across the line for that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I did the same thing with Matty Cox. We were both just yeah, banging out kind of fourteen thirty pace and then just sprint finish who wasn't going to come last. Was, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, and because, it, bit of- because it's around the track as well, everyone can see you and you're just nearly getting lapped and yeah, not much fun at all. No, exactly, mate. Yeah, I don't think um yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't head into a race like that again unless I was in sort of you know, low 14-minute shape because, yeah, it doesn't do too much for the confidence. So let's maybe – well, you spoke about your training not being a lot, so maybe give the listeners a bit of context around uh, what kind of a training week would look like back then. 
Yeah, so I guess the majority of my problems, I mean, as we'll speak more about the drug use and stuff, I'm just I'm just not consistent. You know, I'll sort of put in three or four really good months and then fall off the wagon or, or lose a bit of passion or that sort of thing. So I know that, I mean, knowing what I know now, running's really one of those sports where you've sort of got to have a few years behind you before you really start to see those consistent results and that consistent improvement. Um, so I've never really ran more than 110K a week, which for the average person sounds like a lot. But um, as you know, mate, doing a marathon training and stuff, a lot of these top guys and, and you know, mates of mine and stuff, they're all sort of you know at a base trying to do 130, 140 and you know higher, um, You know, running twice a day most days. Um, and yeah, I guess because I've never had that consistent training, I haven't sort of been able to build myself up to that because you, know, you can't just go out and start running 150Ks a week. You sort of got to get a, a little bit of a base and – I just haven't allowed my body to get that sort of that base. Um, so hopefully this time around I can just go a little bit slower and, and get myself up to that more consistent training and start to see some you know better results. It's pretty crazy though those list of PBs off no consistency and um, not a lot of training. It's a it's a pretty good bang for your buck kind of amount of work you put in to get those times out in return. Yeah, I think um, I mean I'm. I, a little bit maybe lucky but um when i do something i sort of i get pretty full on and pretty intense about it and you know i improve quite quickly but then i sort of you know um sort of bullet gate a little bit and you know once i sort of get something i sort of tend to throw it in it's a little bit um cut off your nose to spite your face but yeah when i when i ran like 14 23 at briggs i think that was off about five months training um which which is pretty good really i mean my pb before that was 1444 and that was when I was I think I was 19 um, and that was off I'd had a year of training under my belt to do that um, so I know that if I can sort of get two years together that you know getting under 14 minutes certainly isn't unrealistic um, yeah and then talk me through like you know year 12 rolled around you finished high school um, pretty interesting time in everyone's life isn't it where, where you need a bit of direction and need a bit of routine but what did that look like for Pat Smith yeah, so I um I actually I was doing year thirteen I believe at um, Newstead College um, and I'd just come back from nationals um, up in up in Brisbane and I got fourth in the um, overall race. I was first school age student and then um, me and Jimmy Hansen both won the time trial. So that was like a really good running year for me, you know, to to be up there like I. You know, I think they had a bad day, those boys, but like I beat Brett Robinson, who we all know how good he is, and, you know, guys like um, David Ricketts, who doesn't run anymore, but he was a great runner, and Kev Batt. I think um, I beat Kev Batt. So, like, to have a day like that and, and sort of be in the same, you know, league as them at, at that age, like, I was, you know, that, that was a, sort of where I really started to enjoy my athletics. And um, I ended up taking a job working for um, my, my coach's brother, who um, had launched a brand called Kahoo. Um, running so i'm not sure how they're going at the moment old kahoo but back then they were a great shoe and um ended up working there and then um moved to hobart to um work in, in kim gillard's shop um and yeah sort of i guess be under the guidance of him and, and start like a, i guess what, what i thought at that time would be my running career down there so sacrificed a few things to kind of um you know not go to uni or not really concentrate on work and move towns to uh, you know the support of Kim would be pretty paramount I'd think and kind of you were really uh, focused on chasing that running dream. Yeah, I guess you know from a young age um, I sort of a little bit silly, but I remember telling my grade six teacher that I either wanted to be a professional tennis player at the time or a postie. So I'm a bit extreme. I'm either something you know 
sort of uh, you know a little bit unrealistic maybe being a world number one tennis player or happy just to be a postie you know I've never sort of <laughs> had desires to be a, a doctor or a physio or you know I guess that career path for me was was always based around sport and if it wasn't around sport I'd sort of just be happy making a few coffees and serving a bit of food so um yeah which, which really teamed well with with running I guess the running lifestyle yeah so talk us through that time at the running edge down in Hobart yeah, uh, I mean, in hindsight, I, I probably wasn't ready to, to move away from, from home. I was 19, um, and I spent my 20th birthday down there, and I started to run pretty well, but once again, I, I sort of put all the eggs in the, if I'm not good in five minutes basket, I'll give it up, and I got injured, and I mean, I probably should have stuck at it a little bit longer. I, I had an injury that probably wasn't that bad, but I, I had a car accident a year earlier, and um, I think I had a dislocated hip or a green stick fracture there. MRI couldn't really tell and um, I just had a lot of problem with that hip and a lot of weakness and I was just struggling living down there being away from the parents and, and some close friends and um, yeah I was really in hindsight grateful for the opportunity Kim gave and I sort of wish I stuck it out but I was only down there for about six months I think and ended up moving home um, moving back to, to Launceston not living with mum and dad I'd, once I'd moved out of home I sort of I guess got the taste for living out of home and the, the benefits that come with that you know and sort of no set time to be home and, you know, sort of, I guess, no one to answer to. Um, and then I started playing footy, which probably wasn't the right decision just with that sort of lifestyle and the sort of things that go on in a footy club, I guess, with my personality. Um, yeah, they, they didn't mix too well. It's a pretty scattery uh, 12 months there, isn't it? You know, moving houses, yeah. moving, living in, you know, from home to away to home, but in another house and, yeah, a couple of different sports and a couple of different jobs. And um, the kind of writing's probably a bit on the wall that you're pretty vulnerable to start uh, mixing into a different world. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess, yeah, that was when I first started, I guess, um, using weed. Uh, it was something that was just done on the weekends after a footy match or even sometimes the night before and just a few mates that I had that, you know, um, for, for a lot of people, you know, they, they can take things like weed and alcohol and, you know, they can they can have it once a week or once a month. But um, I was pretty soon sort of discovered that I'm someone that, that can't do that. Um, it sort of just became a daily, a daily way to deal with anything really. Um, and then there was, I guess, you know, a bit of drinking with that as well, just with the, the, the footy parties and, you know, drinking during the week with uni nights and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, sort of, I guess, found myself getting involved in that sort of stuff too right. regularly. Um, yeah, it sounds like that was your new thing though. Like you kind of talked about how you you know, when you're in on something, you're fully in and uh, with running kind of not being there and footy kind of was it, do you reckon the footy was more of a social stuff like were you playing seniors or just kind of doing it to be amongst the boys every weekend Nah, i mean you know, to, to be honest oh, if any of the hillwood boys listen i probably thought i should have played seniors they didn't pick me so i'm a bit, <laughs> bit stiff about that mate but um no i, I played i mean I, we trained twice a week and then the game on the weekend and i you know i did all right like i, I really enjoyed it I, I loved playing i was up at center half forward and like i was i think Halfway through the year, I missed the last six games of the year, but I was I was leading the best and fairest count and the goal kicking, and I was really enjoying it. Like footy is something that you know I love to sit down and watch, and and uh, and I enjoyed it. But um, I guess just the lifestyle with the with the drinking, the partying, and that sort of thing, um, you know, hindsight just wasn't the right sort of sport for me to be playing really. Um, and yeah, without running there and that sort of total commitment to training and eating and that sort of stuff that you have with athletics, footy, I've sort of find you can party and get away with it and you sort of um, got a few other blokes that can help you out if you're having a bad game whereas in, in running you sort of unless you put the training in you just you can't run well it just doesn't work that way yeah you're so exp exposed there's no one who can help you out there when you're 
you know, 4K into a 5K race or anything like that. No, that's right. There's no one else to um, to take over for you. That's, yeah, certainly true. Yeah, so did you get over, obviously you got over that running injury if you were playing some pretty good footy, but never kind of went back <laughs> to the athletics for a few years there? No, I had, yeah, I would have been quite a, f- a few years off. Um, and then I think I, I sort of finished up with the footy. I mean, once again, um, you know, I guess being someone that's, passionate at the time i was vegetarian now vegan that doesn't really fit into a footy culture with barbecues and stuff and and when you're bringing along a potato salad with no meat and dairy and they're having a a sausage sizzle and stuff people are going to ask questions and stuff and i just sort of um i guess yeah i just don't don't fit into that sort of that that sort of lifestyle that that goes with it and i found myself just sort of not enjoying the the football club and, and and that sort of thing and um i sort of started to jog again this is probably maybe a year and a half later i started to do a little bit of jogging and um yeah got myself pretty fit again and ended up getting myself a girlfriend and um but then you know i was a bit like that like i sort of had running and then new girlfriend came along and so then the girlfriend sort of becomes i guess the drug you know running was the drug and then you know, I get a girlfriend, so then I sort of find it hard to balance the two and then ended up getting some shin splints and then so had a girlfriend and then took another year off running. So, yeah, very patchy, mate. Yeah, well, it seems that, doesn't it? Like it's, it just seems like, uh, yeah, you're really into one thing, but you could really drop that at any minute and pick up something else really quickly. Yeah, no, I sort of don't have a lot, a lot of consistency and I've, I've really struggled my whole life to have balance, I think, um, Kim Gillard's been trying to tell tell me that since I was about seventeen. You know, it's about about balance. It's about the big picture. But I can only only sort of see five minutes ahead. Um, and yeah, so whenever something new comes along, mum mum calls me the chameleon. Really, <laughs> if yeah, I'm right. sort of with athletics, mate, I'm doing athletics. If I'm with druggy people, I'm doing drugs. And if I'm with people playing football, I'm a footballer. So yeah, I guess through you know hindsight, I've, I've said that word about twelve times today, mate. But with that, I think that's a lot of that problem has come through not not feeling accepted with with the stuff that happened with tennis and and at school and um, I guess yeah being someone that um, you know I, I always wanted to fit in and feel accepted as any young person does and when you don't you sort of find yourself trying to discover who you are and um, yeah I certainly up until now I still still don't really know who I am mate. <laughs> well it's yeah like you're only 26 and far out it's hard to. It's hard to get through that kind of, you know, 16 to 22 age bracket as it is because so much is going on in your life and different chemicals through your brain and you just do heaps of stupid stuff. But I um, I can't imagine what it'd be like with that history of that bullying and um, I guess that breaking. Like I had pretty good routine growing up and it was still a difficult time for me and you're not really sure who you are and you're kind of searching for a bit of identity through there. But yeah, I just can't imagine what it'd be like for you. Yeah, I mean, I've always had a really good family life and, you know, some really close, you know, good mates and I've had a lot of support from family. Um, but, you know, there's only so much they can do and, and when you're sort of an adult and you, you, you sort of, you know, you have to make your own decisions, your own choices, I guess with myself not having a lot of self-worth and, and self-confidence, I've just made a lot of stupid, irrational decisions that have sort of led me down the path I'm on now and, and I hope now, I guess I was reading some of that, I reckon that the guys don't grow up till they're 30. I think for me, it might be 35, mate, but um you know i I think now i'm I'm slowly starting to mature and you know there's certainly a lot of things that i'd change but i think i start to feel now that i I know who i am a little bit more and and what i want and you know that that if the same uh, you know situations arise i'd sort of have the ability to 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 choose the right option this time around 
So, yeah. Did the um, choice to go vegetarian, was that a bit like that as well? You watched a doco and you just jumped into it full-blown. But, you know, we're kind of talking about maybe 2011 here. Like, it's a pretty trendy and a pretty... um, you know, hipster culture and are pretty informed with so many more documentaries and books on the benefits of being vegetarian and vegan now. So I'm really interested to hear why that decision came about back in 2011. Yeah, well, it's actually the probably thing that I, it's probably the only thing I'm proud of myself for um, for doing because it's, it's the only thing I've stuck at. Like when I did it when I turned 12, so I think um, mum and I had spoken about it. Mum said she'd always wanted to do it. And I think I said to her, like, what, why don't you? And that sort of just sort of kickstarted this thing for us to sort of just look into, um, you know, I guess where meat comes from and what happens with the cruelty. And for me, it was never about health. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff now that does talk about the health benefits, but I just sort of have the view that, you know, cats and dogs were once wild animals. I mean, we've domesticated them over thousands of years. And so to me, there's no difference between a cat a dog a fish a shark a pig you know they're all the same and i mean they're they're all animals that that are wild and we've chosen to domesticate some and and we sort of yeah i guess i I call it speciesism it's sort of a lot easier to get it mad at other cultures for eating dogs and cats when you're sitting down having a ham sandwich so i just sort of feel that um yeah i I, it's just not something that i want to partake in I, i don't feel like i could personally sort of sleep well at night if i was eating animals and that's that's not to have a go at anyone else or say that they're in the you know they're in the wrong or that i'm a better person or anything like that it's just it's my personal view and and yeah it's just the way i, I feel about animals yeah so you've been doing that for like 14 years how consistent yeah, are you? yeah. yeah. since i was 12 so as i said probably the only thing i've been able to stick <laughs> yeah. the consistency is uh, yeah. there with the diet but uh everything else has been a bit all over the shop yeah, definitely not. Okay, so we're up to this stage of your life where you've got this girlfriend, you put running on hold to uh, be boyfriend of the year, kind of putting all the eggs in that basket. <laughs> and I can imagine as relationships uh, do when you're in your early 20s, things don't turn out that well in the end. No, so I mean, she was a nice girl and, um, you know, but we just, we went our separate ways. And, and so then that ends and I'm back on the running train again, um, you know, and I'm, I'm back training quite well again. And I guess with myself, like when I'm running well, I have a little bit more confidence about myself. As everyone knows, you go for a run, you get the adrenaline going and the endorphins. And, um, yeah, I actually sort of met this other new girl um, a few months down the track. And then um, I was really, I guess, trying to balance the two, you know, training full on and having a job and having a girlfriend. And this particular girlfriend was was a little bit younger than me, so there was, I guess, little bits of things to juggle with her parents and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, we I'd been travelling all right, um, you know. But I think I think I got yeah, it was getting shin splints, and and the girl and I had been dating about eighteen months, and I sort of running and started to fall off the wagon a bit. I think it was yeah, a little bit after that Melbourne Melbourne race, um, probably six months after that Melbourne race. I think I got injured, and I just. Yeah, had a bad run at Lonnie 10. I think I got a stitch and ended up running 33 minutes or something. And just after that, things started to spiral again. And um, the girl being a lot younger than me, we didn't get to see a lot of each other. So I'd start to use weed on nights that I didn't see her and stuff. And just as a coping mechanism, it just became, you know, like if there was any problem with anything at all, I'd just go out and, and use weed or, you know, go and go and party and drink. And, um, yeah, soon, soon, I guess I started to spiral out of control quite quickly. So at this stage, it's still cannabis, like that's the kind of drug of choice. Yeah, yeah that's it. I mean, I hadn't hadn't had anything else um, b- before that. It was just cannabis. Um, and then the girlfriend and I had broken up um, through something silly that I'd that I'd done. I'd you know just lied about where I was and and that sort of thing. And 
yeah, I'd, I'd taken on a, a job as a real estate agent, um, and that was quite full on to to go from not knowing anything about real estate to to sort of working full time nine to five Monday to Saturday with no experience or you know course behind me, um, and I was really starting to you know just having having the break up, and I really cared about this person, and then trying to um, balance a job and study to become a real estate agent. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of struggled with balance in general, as you've heard, mate. So mm. those sort of things to balance just wasn't working. So I, um, I left that and started working in a uh, hospitality job. Um, and I, I was sort of, you know, smoking weed before and after work and that sort of thing. And then uh, one of the gentlemen that, that worked there, he had actually, turns out, was a uh, an ice addict or an ice dealer from, from Sydney. Um, and, yeah, me and him had been smoking weed together and he mentioned meth. And, I mean, this was quite a few years back. So it was sort of before, I guess, what we know about Ice and before and, Breaking and, Bad came out, we're we talking that yeah, before that, yeah. yeah. Well, before that, mate. Um, I'm pretty I'll, straight. This is yeah. This is all new to me. Yeah, yeah no. I apologise to anyone listening. That's you know, it's a bit full on. But, nah, but I think know, it's going to be people yeah. are going to be curious as well. I've got some good questions yeah. hopefully to unpack it coming up. But yeah, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, nah, just just cut me off whenever you want, mate. Because yeah. I've got no filter, so I'll I'll, I'll talk to the cows come home. Breaking, um, breaking Bad jokes. We'll keep those out of it from now yeah. on. No worries, mate. Um, yeah, so I'd started using this particular drug with this gentleman and, um, yeah, sort of, you know, as, as we know now with anyone that takes it, you, to the, you know, the first few times was just, you know, insane and no one should have it because the feelings it gives you and that sort of sense of power and love and feeling, like I sort of explained, it's sort of like having sex, finding out it's Christmas and it's your birthday and you, it's a public holiday so you don't have to work all at the same time. Like it's just this euphoria that, that you can't control. Um and yeah, so after that, I think, you know, I'd had it and then three weeks later, I, I knew I had a really big problem that I was in trouble that I sort of couldn't live without it. Um, and then, yeah, so from, from there, it was quite a downhill spiral, um, you know, using that and trying to work and just the, the come down when you, when you don't have it. Um, you know, I was very naive going into it. I, I didn't ask as many questions as I should. I just, I just took it and I didn't know enough about it. And, you know, if I had my time again, I just, I would never have touched it. It's just not worth these these problems it's caused me now um and yeah ended up um yeah cut me off whenever you want mate <laughs> ah, this is all interesting mate keep going yeah. no worries um yeah so ended up leaving that job or actually I, I sort of got fired the the gentleman that got me involved he got fired um and then three months later they let me go just because i'd, I'd given up the ice but i was still smoking weed um and so i sort of mutual sort of left and then um Ended up moving to Melbourne to live with a mate um, and sort of got myself, you know, back on track. You know, I sort of realised that, you know, I am an addict and I sort of can't indulge in these things and um, got my life together and ended up working at Adidas in Melbourne. So I'd probably been clean about four months by that stage. Um, and then, yeah, as silly as it sounds, I saw an ad where they're um, talking about banning um, sweet puffs, which is the pipes that people smoke meth out of at um, tobacco stores. And, and just seeing that ad... You know, and seeing the the film of the smoke in it, it just triggered, and and yeah, I went out and and got got some more, and and then I was yeah, all of a sudden I was I was back back doing it again. Yeah, right. I guess the first question, because this is interesting for me, like I'm pretty pretty straight school teacher, not really involved in this world, but how yep. accessible is it? Like even like with cannabis and now talking about meth, like obviously you can hit someone up in your phone and you could have some really quick kind of thing. Like, is it that easy to find yeah, on the street? Right. 
Um, I mean, I, I can't speak for anyone that, that that's done drugs, you know, 20 years ago or, or anything like that because I wasn't around then. But I, I can guarantee it's a lot easier now. Um, you know, there's there's apps on your phone where you can have secret messaging devices to to contact people on the internet, and it's yeah. I mean, even in Launceston, I you know I I I know where they live and what houses they live and. I could sort of go get it any time, and in Melbourne, it, it's it's even easier. It's it's on every corner, to be honest, mate. It's um, I'd even say, go as far to say that ice is is a lot easier to get than weed. Um, there's been times when I was trying to get weed, and that was harder to get than ice. So it's 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 too accessible. It's almost scary. I mean, the average parent, I think, if they knew how easy it was, they you know they'd be you know so concerned as you are because it's such a horrible drug and it's um, way too accessible. And it's quite hidden though, obviously. Like if you're not looking for it, I've walked, I know you know even in our small town here that's been in the newspapers about a problem and it's kind of gone through small towns uh, pretty rapidly and had some pretty devastating effects. But I always read the articles in the paper and I just kind of um, I can't. Sometimes I don't believe it because it just it doesn't seem like it's in front of your face, and you just don't really see it if you're not in those circles. Yeah, no, I, I can understand that. I mean, if you you know, um, you know, if you're not sort of knowing what to look for, but I mean, yeah, like even Melbourne, like Southern Cross Station, that's that's a hot spot. That was where if, if ever I was heading to work, I, I worked down in. Um, Oh, I should know. I should know. I worked there at that DFO down in um, South Wharf. Yeah. Um, so really close to you know Southern Cross Station where I used to catch my train, and, and that would where where I'd go in the morning to get it before work. Um, you know, a lot of train stations around Melbourne, just a lot of the suburbs where I lived in Caulfield South and Glen Huntley, and yeah, it's just it's yeah, it's it's very it's very quick. Obviously, it's you know like like weed. They just they put it a little bit in a plastic bag and it's a shake of hands or it's a you know leave it behind somewhere and you send them the money or, or whatever it is. It's very quick. It's very fast and that's why you know I'm sure it's it's so hard for the police to monitor and, and that sort of thing because you know it's not like a stolen TV where you've got to lift this heavy thing. It's you know it's a drug and it's small and it's accessible quick and yeah it's it's pretty horrible when you talk about it like this. It's it's a bit embarrassing for me to even I guess be talking to you about it. You know, I was certainly straight edge before I was, you know, 19, 20 and would never have dreamed of, you know, being involved in this sort of world where, yeah, it's all these sort of horrible things happening on the daily. But it probably shows just how uh, addictive the properties of it are that you go to these lengths to be walking through train stations to get hold of it. it have you got some, I guess, I don't know, the podcast called Tell Me Some Tales, but just how, um, you know, try to express just how addictive it was. Yeah, no, um, very. I mean, I guess, you know, if, if you sort of tell someone that's a pack-a-day smoker that they can only have two cigarettes, they'd really struggle. So people, you know, as a nature are addicted, whether it be chocolate or coffee or cigarettes, but when it's, you know, an amphetamine, it's a drug that's made, you know, weed, weed's addictive to the right people. I, you know, I was just addicted to weed, I believe, as I am with ice or heroin or, or any other drug, but... Yeah, with ice, it's just, um, yeah, that euphoria, as I said, where you sort of have unlimited energy and confidence and happiness and, you know, you could be told that you have to work a 15-hour shift and you'd be happy as, as Larry, you know. So it just becomes, it's almost like water, you know. You, you have to have it. You, you can't operate without it. And if you don't have it, it, you almost feel like you're not alive. So it's, um, yeah, you know, unless you've had it, you sort of, I guess, don't know how addictive it is. So by all means, anyone listening to this, don't don't go out and try it. Listening to me talk about it because it's yeah, it's 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 horrible. Tell me a bit about the come down. Like you spoke about, like obviously, if you're taking this stuff before work, your boss and that would know. Like if you're acting in a way that everything's amazing and you're so um, 
almost over the top. Like, yeah, how, how does that work? Yeah, no, I mean, it. I mean, I can't speak for the people I was working for. I mean, I, I got, I guess, I got. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I guess, listening to this now would probably looking back, they'd, they'd see some of my behaviour and think, yeah, there was something up, but. You know, I'd managed to function quite well. Um, I mean, you know, you're feeling these feelings, but you're trying not to betray them, um, if that makes sense. So, you know, when I started using it at this hospitality job, I, you know, my prep work would take me five hours to cut up these veggies. You know, I started using ice, and it took me two and a half hours. So you just become, you know, you're thinking ahead of time. You know, your um, your rhythm and, and whatever job you're doing, everything's you know ahead of time. You you know, it's like you're almost seeing into the future, and you unlimited energy and you're just happy for no you know no reason i'm not saying you, you, you're walking around like you're on a, a mushroom trip or something you're just very controlled it's it's not like i guess weed where it's um that sort of slow happy feeling it's more of this you know it's i guess um i mean what they say it's for anyone that, that knows about cocaine it's sort of cocaine on steroids it's it's you're, you're very um energetic and um yeah i mean i, I think they probably might have known something was up but it was nothing i guess that they could you know uh, unless I had a drug test um, that they sort of, you know, would think to, to yeah, I guess to, to test me or anything like that. I wasn't behaving um, when I was on. I wasn't behaving inappropriately or anything. But certainly when you come down, you, you know, you lose all that enthusiasm and that energy and that motivation. And so you sort of go from someone that looks like they're given 120% at work to, to being half-hearted. Yeah, right. So would a normal day when you're using look like you'd, You'd get on, get a hit before work, go to work, power through, and then just as you're coming down, get another hit after work to get you through the evening? Or what was a yeah, kind of general day yeah, like? Yeah, pretty much, mate. Um, you know, you'd have to have it before work. I mean, if you didn't have it at work, you, you know, you'd just be a shit employee, really. There'd be no motivation. And, and yeah, you sort of take it just to get through the day and to enjoy work. And, you know, you would if you had it, but if you didn't, you know, it'd just be, it'd just be hell. Um, and then at night... Of course, you know you want more if you can have it, but but sometimes also you just you just want weed to come down. You know that helps you, it calms you down, and then sort of save save some if you had some for the next day. Because um, obviously when you have this drug, you can't sleep. You go three, four, five days at a time without sleeping, um, and so then when it's not in your system, you you know you, you do turn into I guess what they call an ice zombie. You know I, I can't condone any of these horrible stories about you hear people doing things because it's just absolutely disgusting uh, the only thing i can relate to is knowing what they say by ice zombie because you just yeah you're not yourself you 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 are walking dead because your body's so depleted um yeah what about cost and stuff mate like if you're doing two hits of this a day what kind of uh, cost are we talking yeah i mean de- depending on who you know i, I actually when I started first using it, I ended up getting a credit card to pay for it, which, um, yeah, I'll, I'll actually have finally paid off that credit card in two weeks. So, Good work, yeah. So, um, yeah, I ended up getting a credit card just because, yeah, to pay for it, it, it isn't cheap. Um, you know, prices vary, I guess, between states and that sort of thing. But, yeah, I guess a hit or a point, which is 0.1, that's that's like usually about $50, anywhere between 50 and 100 The more you buy the the cheaper it is, but you know, I guess I almost would have had, you know, fifty to a hundred dollar a day, you know, habit, and then you're, you're racking up ticks with people and tell them you'll pay them back when you get paid, and so then when you do get paid, you owe money, and you know, I had a credit card repayment as well, I had rent to pay, so then food money would go towards weed and ice, and so then I wasn't eating, and then yeah, it's just you know, you sort of looking back at it now, I sort of wonder why I'd even put myself through it, but. You do because you're you're addicted. So yeah, it's it's not a cheap hobby at all. It's um you know it's 
it's a, it's a waste of money and um, yeah, you, you, you spend you know a ridiculous amount. Yeah, it adds up over the week, doesn't it? If you're doing that every day of the week, you're looking at seven hundred bucks pretty quick. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't afford seven hundred bucks a week, so I you know I'd buy two or three hundred dollars and try and make that last a week, and then if not, you'd rack up ticks or tell people you get them back, or you know. I'd, go and sell a pair of shoes or sell I sold my computer at one point, I sold my bike, you know, all these little things that look at it now and I'm actually in my bedroom and, you know, I've got mum and mum and dad's old TVs and I had a much nicer one. I had a really good laptop. I had, a, you know, a nice bike. I had all these things that, you know, I've just thrown away all for something that, that disappears in, you know, a day or two. So it's, yeah, pretty, pretty silly behaviour. Yeah, well, I guess... Maybe just unpack what's the next step of life because this doesn't sound real good. This living in Melbourne, um, going through yeah. this kind of, uh, you know, yeah, doing this day in, day out, week in, week out, and kind of just heading terribly in the wrong direction, I suppose. Yeah, so um, I ended up um, getting getting fired from, from Adidas. There was a video of me doing drugs at home, which I, you know, to be honest with you, mate, I don't remember doing it, but I, I did it with a friend and it was myself smoking smoking the drug and blowing a, you know, big thing of smoke and I filmed on my phone and I deleted the, the video on my phone but it backed up over Wi-Fi and someone whose phone I'd actually logged into on, on theirs, um, you know, so my email was on their phone. They actually saw the video on um, on their on their email. They went to sign into their email and saw mine and, you know, the, the old Google backup drive or the cloud or whatever they call it and um, that person actually – yeah, sent the video to my boss and my boss's boss and my boss's boss's boss. Um, so I'd actually had a couple of day, uh, roster days off and went back into work and got called in and they showed me the video and, and yeah, I was mortified because I, I didn't believe that I'd sent it. But then at the same time, I thought, geez, I can't remember it. So maybe I did. So I, I thought that I sent it in, um, found out it was actually someone that was close to me and I was quite mad at them for quite a while. But, you know, looking at it now, had I not been doing the wrong thing, um, you know, they, they wouldn't have needed to do that and they were just doing it because they cared about me. Um, and yeah, so I ended up losing that job. Um, and then, yeah, I was in, I was in real trouble to be honest, mate. I, my lease was running out. I had no money cause I had no job. I had no place to live. So I ended up becoming homeless for about four months. Um, the place that I was getting my drugs from, I ended up staying there and I was, I was sleeping on a sleeping bag and, you know, between that and the couch between two different rooms and yeah, living in, in a drug house and, um, yeah, all the things that go with that. Um, it was just, yeah, it was horrible in that short space of time. Two people I knew um, committed suicide. There was three people that were hospitalised, two people that were arrested, you know, death threats, people coming around, people walking down the hallway with axes. And, yeah, it was just, it was a nightmare. It was just, yeah, you, you sort of wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Far out. And, like, what's the relationship like with your family at this stage? Like, they couldn't just get no. you on a plane and get you out of there? No, no, they, they, they did. Um, you know, at that time, um, you know, I was still active addiction, um, you know, still using, even though I was hating the lifestyle I'd created for myself. Um, you know, I still in, in my head sort of didn't want to give it up. You know, I hadn't, hadn't had that, you know, they say you've got to hit that rock bottom. I mean, even though I was seeing all these things, I still had drugs. So even though these horrible things were happening around me, as long as I had drugs, I could deal with it. Um, and then, yeah, got to a point where the, the guy who's sleeping, uh, floor I was sleeping on, he, um, he came home one night and shot up some, some heroin and, and, and what happens if you have too much of that, you, you pass out and your body forgets to breathe. So he actually started to die, um, in, in the room next to me and couldn't hear him breathing and I'm freaking out and the other guy that lives there is freaking out and 
you know, we want to call an ambulance, but, you know, we know that the cops will come because there's drug paraphernalia everywhere. And so we had to roll him on his side and, you know, throwing cold water on him and whacking him on the face. And you sort of just got to kickstart their body again. And, and luckily he, he made it. But, you know, had he not, I guess part of that's on me. You know, that, that would have been on me. And, and just seeing that and seeing someone's face turn blue, their eyes not open and choking on their own saliva, that, that was when I really hit my rock bottom. And I rang up mum and dad and sort of, you know, said, can I please come home? Um, I, I can't do this anymore. And, you know, they were more than willing to have me back. Yeah, right. And what about like, what are you obviously not doing any running at this stage? But like, what are you? Where are you getting food to like, yeah, eat and stuff like that? Or are you just motoring yeah, through, just this zombie? Yeah, we're not, we're not mates. I mean, there's there's times where there wasn't wasn't enough toilet. You know, people if they had a dollar left over, they wouldn't go buy toilet toilet paper. They'd be trying to find nine dollars more to buy a, a butt of weed. So, and I was living off rice, pasta, bread. There was a little mission down the road that you could go you know once a fortnight to to get like a little um $30 um Woolworths voucher um so yeah I, I wasn't eating to be honest mate I was yeah I was gaunt I was yeah had, had I been there you know a month or two longer I probably wouldn't be talking to you now mate to be honest because yeah I, there was you know you, you don't feel like certainly eating healthy um and I, I was still it's a bit strange I was still pretty moral about not eating meat so I mean they, they'd bring home sausages and stuff that people had given to them or vouchers that they got for a butcher and stuff but I, I wouldn't eat that so I ended up just yeah living on white bread and, and pasta and rice and yeah certainly certainly nothing nutritious about the way I was living yeah and um like did you ever jump on some scales you wouldn't have been weighing much would you no, I didn't. We didn't have any scales in the house. If if there was any, I'm sure they would have been sold. So, yeah, someone would have sold them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I yeah I, I yeah I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm I'm about six three. So at the moment, like I weigh about seventy two kilos. But yeah, I wouldn't have been wouldn't have been much more than, than probably sixty two, sixty three kilos. I don't reckon. Um, yeah, hard, hard to say. But I was definitely skinny and and yeah mal- malnourished did you have you know sometimes you see on the ads like all the, the scabs and stuff that people have and just in the advertisements about the dangers of ice like were you pretty scabbed yeah. up no nah, uh, pretty pretty lucky i guess um i'd, I'd start to get like pimples and break out because because when you take it you obviously your, your heart rate increases so you're sweating and you you know they say that you know you, you sort of smell a bit because you're sweating and, and then you get pimples and those pimples turn to scabs because you're scratching and um, after I lost the, the job at Adidas, I actually started using drugs intravenously. Um, so, so with a needle and using using ice and heroin and cocaine. And, and when you, I guess, when you're using it intravenously, you, you're still sweating and, and that sort of thing. But it's it's not as much. So you're not picking at your face. I guess it'd more be at your arms and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, pretty lucky um, that I didn't get that sort of thing because I have seen some of the photos. And Mum used to tell me, you know, look at the stuff that's in it and look at the photos of how you look and you know, you know, I, I sort of didn't want to because I knew how horrible it was. But um, I was pretty lucky to get away with not getting that. I, I had bad skin for sure. I was getting pimples, but didn't get, I guess, those holes in the face and stuff that you see that some people, are, you know, that get that that are using. Yeah, right. So that SOS call goes home, and um, you're home pretty quick after that, and life's back on track. Or what happened next? Um, I mean, pr- pretty quick. Mum had sort of said to me, um, you know, that obviously I came back home, I, I couldn't use, you know, this is this is their house and, you know, they're really against drugs. You know, they've known people that have been involved in it. It's been horrible and they didn't want me coming home unless I was willing to, to give it up. And, you know, at, at that time I had no job, so I jumped on jumped on Centrelink and mum said, you know, once that first pay comes through, if you can keep it, um, you know, book a flight home. 
Um, I actually ended up owing a drug dealer and my the guy whose floor I was sleeping on, he owed as well. So I ended up that first week paying for him um, you know, and myself on, on what we owed. So then I couldn't fly back that week. So then obviously, you know, selling pays fortnightly. So the next fortnight comes around and, you know, got no money, got no drugs, can come home, but the addiction's still there. And, and yeah, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't come home because, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't wait, you know, I had to have the drugs. So I ended up, you know, purchasing drugs again. So it, it sort of took me, it's about six weeks to get home after that really big rock bottom, even though I knew I didn't want any more. You know, it sounds for anyone listening, I probably sound like an absolute idiot and, and I can understand why, but yeah, that addiction is, is still so powerful that, um, yeah, you know, you sort of give up even that opportunity to come home just just to, to score one last time and that sort of thing. So it took me sort of about six six weeks, I think, to to finally book that flight and come home. When I said it, it took me six weeks to to get back from Melbourne, um, and that in that six weeks, you know, I had opportunities to fly back earlier if I was able to book my own flight, but you know, I couldn't. I was that consumed by the drugs, and I couldn't even wait or go 48 hours without drugs, you know, to, to enable myself to book a flight. And in the end, mum ended up having to book a flight because she could just see that I, I wouldn't come home if it was under my own steam. I, I was just, you know, that lost and that gone. And, and even when I came back and I got myself back on track, um, you know, and then I fell off the wagon again, I got to the stage where I, I just I wanted mum to give up on me. I wanted to go back to that lifestyle because it's, it's a lot easier to give up and, and go back to that than to work hard and to keep trying to to get off drugs and I guess that's why so they're so addictive and you know I, I begged her at one stage to give up on me and she never gave up not once you know I, and if it wasn't for her and, and that belief and to keep on trying and trying different things and you know I don't think I'd be here today. And what was it like jumping on that you know Jetstar, Tiger, Virgin, whatever the airline was uh, out of Tullamarine there did you feel like it was um just a massive achievement to get out of there. Um, just, just relief, really, um, because yeah, as I said, the, the things that I'd seen and the, and the, the events that had transpired over that sort of last four or five months, you know, I just felt relieved to, to be home. Um, you know, but that being said, I'd been using drugs up until the day that I left, so there was a long process ahead of me as far as you know trying to detox and you know I hadn't been able to go without drugs for that four or five months, you know, with everyday use. So I was scared as well, definitely scared and. And worried, I guess, of, you know, people are going to see me back home and, you know, how things were because, you know, mum was you know happy to have me home. But at the same time, she had a lot of things going on in her life with, you know, her mum being sick and, and other family members that she needs to care for. And, and then this, I guess, sort of big battle with me because, I you know, it's not like I can just come home and just continue on with life. There needs to be rules. Like I wasn't allowed to have a phone, you know, for obvious reasons. I could go out and get drugs and wasn't allowed to, to go out at night because, once again, you know, obvious reasons. And so, you know, mum sort of had to become not just my mum, but I guess, you know, my banker, my, my jail warden and, and all that sort of thing, which no parent should have to do to their 26-year-old son. Um, but she was willing to do all that to, to try and help me. So at the same time, I was relieved, but, but definitely scared. Mm, so did you sit down with her and kind of, um, you know, make it real black and white? These are the rules. I need to get through this. And she's in charge and doesn't matter what happens. Uh, it's mum's way on the highway kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, she's, she sort of said that, you know, if, you know, if, if you don't give them up and if, if you slip up, then, you know, you'll be back on a plane back there because, you know, as much as, you know, she cares for me. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of, you know, this drug thing hadn't just been happening in Melbourne. It happened in Launceston before I went to Melbourne and, and the drug use had been happening before I guess I'd even started using ice. So mum had seen these patterns of 
me being addicted and I guess myself not wanting to admit it or wanting to give it up. So, you know, even though she would have hated to have to do it, she sort of said that, you know, if you, if you don't get yourself clean or if you still continue to go out and use drugs while you're living here because, you know, I had nowhere else to go, literally nowhere else to go and no money that, you know, I, I would have to leave. So I'm sure as a parent that's, you know, an absolutely horrible thing to, to have to think about doing. But, you know, she, we did have rules in place that she made and that I had to adhere to, Yeah. Yeah, right. So what, is it we talking like last year, Pat? Where, what kind of timeline are we up to? Yeah, um, so I'm trying to think. Um, so what we uh, run the bridge was January. So I think I came back of June the year before that. So what's that? That makes it 2015? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, you, you were pretty much on back, you know, getting on the rails until, yeah, mid mid last year, 2016 to, um, yeah. yeah, start of 2017 when run the bridge happened and you smashed me pretty much. Yeah, um, so I think, I mean, even between that, I did have, uh, you know, a few slip-ups and I'd love to say that I came back and, and everything's been fine and dandy, but, you know, that's not the case and, you know, you've got to keep sort of trying. Addiction's not something that you just decide, okay, we'll give it up today and then you're fine for the rest of your life. You're going to have slip-ups and I did slip, slip up a couple of times, um, you know, and mum was, as she said, if I made a mistake, she'd, she'd send me on a plane, but she didn't because she's a, a lovely lady, so mum, if you're listening to this, thanks heaps. Um but yeah, I, I slipped up, you know, quite a few times, and then got myself about four months clean, I think, um, and that was the four months was probably a month after run the bridge, I think, and then I had that race um, run Devonport where I, you know, I it was actually a pretty good run really, but being hard on myself, I sort of yeah just got a bit upset and, and ended out going out and, and buying some weed and um, yeah started to go downhill again. It's going back to that tennis kind of stuff, though, isn't it? Being hard on yourself and having these huge expectations. And I think we uh, weren't recording when we spoke about that run Devonport race, but you went down there after a pretty good result at Run the Bridge where you you know broke 30, 31 minutes for a pretty hilly 10K and expected to win. But Tassie's pretty loaded with some pretty good athletes and you had a good battle, but they got the better of you on the day. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, sort of when I think about it now, it's, it's a little bit disrespectful to Dylan. He's someone that puts in a lot of effort and he, you know he's been running for quite a few years consistently and he's had some good results and I guess for me just to sort of think I can come out after four months and beat him and you know I guess the reason I thought that we'd had a few sessions a couple of weeks earlier and, and I was beating him in the session so then my mind side is okay I'm going to win this race and, and then when I didn't it was this, this this big letdown but it's a little bit mean to him because he, he deserved it and you know I he beat me by about eight seconds or 10 seconds so really the positive should you know I should be thinking well that's good you know you've had all this time off and you're only 10 seconds behind him um but it wasn't like that it was like oh you know you're not better than him you're a loser and and yeah you know throw in the towel and we, we start all over again yeah because Dylan's in pretty good shape Launceston 10 I think he broke 30 minutes I'm not sure if it was that year but he's definitely gone under 30 at Launceston 10 before. So we're talking about a quality athlete and you're so hard on yourself after getting rolled by him by eight seconds, as you said. Yeah, yeah. So I just sort of, you know, I look back at it now and I hope, I guess, my, my mindset's changed now that, you know, and that's why I guess I'm not trying to do any races at the moment because, you know, I do want, you know, immediate gratification and, you know, if I sort of, you know, get myself reasonably fit after four months, you know, I certainly want to try and start racing. But this time around, I think I'm just going to have a, you know, a bit of, you know, a bit of build up and, you know, I might do a little race in Hobart at the end of the month and, and I'll try and do run the bridge um, this time around. But I guess the mindset now is just that, 
you know, I know what my thinking does. You know, I've had control of my own thinking for for a long time, and it hasn't hasn't served me well with all the stuff that I've done. So I'm trying to take on other people's advice, and you know, just take things slow and, and try and enjoy the process rather than the destination. And, and that's something that's really hard for me. But just doing it now for these last three months, I'm, I'm starting to see the benefit already. Um, so I'm hoping I can continue it. It's um. I could connect in a way and not in a, not in any similar way, but just a small connection when you have a bad run and you you know you might buy a six pack of beers afterwards or you might go past a servo and stop in and get a uh, maxi bon or a pink donut or something like that. I know I do all yeah. these kind of similar things all the time, and I think a lot of the runners listening will. Uh, I think when you have good good experiences as well, sometimes you treat yourself with a bit of a reward to you know have something that's not so good for your body, but um. I guess when your <laughs> your thing's so addictive, it kind of just yeah. spirals out of control straight away. Whereas I know I can ha- have my maxi bon or have the strawberry donut, and it's not going to just throw my life upside down pretty much uh, yeah. immediately. That's right. Yeah, and I, I think um, I used to rent a house with a, a lady. I'm sort of friends with. I um, got offered a job by her, which was really nice. But you know, she she was our landlord, but she also she was also our neighbour. And you know, I'm sure there would have been many mornings she'd see me wake up and go outside and have weed and then you know 15 minutes later she'd see me going for a jog and i'm just sure i'm sure <laughs> she must be like what's this guy doing like it just you know I'm, i am a bit i guess schizo you know there's sort of two voices in my head the, the voice that says you need weed to have a good day and then i guess i'm sort of feeling guilty so then i go out for a run and yeah a lot of sort of just silly behavior and yeah as you said like it would be much more beneficial to have a bad run and just to go out and have a little bit of junk food or have some hot chips or something but for me the first thought is you know i need this this thing that sort of, I guess, being my best friend that, you know, I had when I sort of felt like I had no one else or, you know, my way to deal with things became became drugs. So when something goes wrong, that's the first thing I turn to, which, you know, it hasn't hasn't served me well. Tell me a bit more about the support. So obviously your mum's played a, you know, a crucial role in that, but were you speaking with counsellors or, um, you know, rehab kind of facilities or, or what was happening? Yeah, I mean, when I was in Melbourne and I first lost the job and started using you know, drugs heavily and in, in, in needles and stuff. I did try and look at rehabs, but they are quite expensive. I mean, there's a few that are government funded and they sort of take six months to get into. So if you're already sort of in trouble, you know, you sort of can't wait six months. Um, so that was why the option, I guess, to come home and just sort of try and do like a home rehab at home. So, you know, no phone and no going out at night. And, you know, mum would obviously have control of my, my money and stuff like that. So that, I guess, was my form of, of rehab was being at home. I, I did try a few counsellors and stuff, um, but a lot of them are, I guess, drug preventatives. Um, and at that point, I didn't, I didn't need, you know, um, prevention because, you know, I, I knew I can't keep using. So that, that wasn't really super helpful. I did see a psychiatrist, but he wasn't, um, you know, I just didn't find like I connected him with him that well. Um, so I sort of found it hard, I guess, to, to open up. And, and so, yeah, um, I didn't find that any of those outlets worked. I guess what's sort of changed this time was, as horrible, as horrible it is, but seeing what my nan went through and, and being there when she passed away, um, it sort of just, you know, wind my eyes to how short life is. And if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm not going to have much of a life or, or a life at all. Um, and so is, is really what I'm doing and the, the hurt I'm causing other people and friends. And, you know, is it, is it really worth doing this to myself as well um, just, for, just, just for drugs? Mm. And now let's move on to, I guess, the low-key running approach. Like you said, you don't want any races that are going to give you that instant gratification. Um, I don't think you're on Strava, are you? You are. You on that? I, I jumped off, but no, nah, I jumped off because uh, I, you know, I, 
once again being pretty addictive. I was sort of checking that like it was Facebook or Snapchat. I was you know looking at it all the time and seeing what the good guys are uploading and try to model my sessions around that. And if they're doing a warm up at 420s, I'm doing a warm up at 420s. And if they're doing eight by K, I'm trying to do eight by K. You know, and just stuff like that. That became an addiction as well. So yeah, I'm not on it. I mean, maybe in the future once I'm a little bit more you know together, but probably not actually. I think I think at the moment it's just definitely something that. Like the best the best I sort of go about things is, is when I treat things low key and, and I sort of cut out anything that could be addictive. Uh, I'm just yeah addictive by nature, whether it be you know with a relationship, with a drug, with a sport, um, so with with a with a phone. Um, so yeah, I think I just sort of cut myself off off that one for a while. Mm, well, I guess you could see what those pros are doing, and you know you could bang out the same session, and then you get home and check what what they've hit for their splits and your five seconds a K slower and then, you know, you get a bit depressed about it and you think you're not doing yeah. the right stuff and, you know, these are kind of triggers for you that could lead to who knows what. Yeah, that's right. Like I remember talking to, to Benny St. Lawrence in Hobart um, and he said, are oh, you still on the plant-based, plant-based diet? And I said, yeah, I'm trying to get off some plants, mate. Like, you know, because it was a bit of a bit of probably a poor, poor tasting joke, but um you know like i just even you know a few weeks before run the bridge i was smoked weed you know and and then you know after that i was fine for four months but then you know it, it slowly creeps in just that that i guess that you know the, the thing on your shoulder and yeah i just i have no balance so for me um, i just sort of have to cut all those sort of behaviors out altogether um and yeah just sort of take a, a really simple-minded approach t- towards it um and just sort of yeah i don't think i've ever actually done running for me it's it's always been about trying to prove to someone or you know oh if i do this i'll get in the paper and people will love me or you know someone that might have said something bad about me they'll they'll like me now because i'm winning this race so it's never really been about me which you know we all know sport should be it should be about fun it should be about enjoyment for the individual and yeah i don't think i've, I've really enjoyed it since i first made that switch to when i was 16 yeah, right. And um, obviously you're back working now. I know you were working this morning. I think we touched on that at the start of recording here. So, you know, the routines are back in place and you're feeling like um, everything's going to be successful from here on in? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to make any promises because I've tried them before and you end up letting yourself and, and more people down. But as I said, with the events that transpired recently, it's just sort of opened my eyes up and you know, my mindset was that, you know, if, if I can't make the Olympics or a Commonwealth Games or make a career out of running, I'll, I'll just be a drug addict, you know, and that, that sounds completely stupid and I know it and people would be thinking that's just, you know, a silly attitude, but that, that was just where my head was at, that if I couldn't have this highest level that I'd just, you know, be, you know, a really poor version of myself, whereas now, you know, I might have missed the boat, I might not ever make a Commonwealth Games or Olympics, but, you know, I can do athletics as a sport, you know, there's a lot of benefits that come with it, health and, you know, social relationships. And, yeah, I've just tried to take that medium-level approach where, you know, I can I can get enjoyment and it's about me. It's not about trying to prove anything to anyone. Um, you know, I, I look at someone like Jake Burtwistle who probably looked up to me when he was younger and, and now I'm looking up to him and, you know, he sort of had the, all the same opportunities as me and he took them and, you know, he'd give up the party lifestyle. He'd be in bed probably early and, you know, I'd be out partying or scoring drugs and, you know, you just look at the two ways those lives have gone. He's made a career out of triathlon and, you know, I probably could have had, I can't swim, so I wouldn't say I'd be a triathlete, but probably could have had a, a more successful running career than, than what I've had, you know, this far. And, you know, I've, I've chosen that sort of wrong option and that wrong way to deal with things. Um, and so, yeah, now I don't, I just don't want to go back there. I guess 
when I first got myself clean, I still felt like I wanted drugs, you know, even though I knew I couldn't have them, I still wanted them. Whereas my mindset now is like, I, I really don't. Um, I hope that stays that way. But the thought of it just, you know, I guess I think about the consequences and what it'll do if I take it and, and how I have to start all over again and letting people down, letting myself down and, you know, going back into that world where, you know, you're not sleeping at night, you're sleeping on the floor, you've got people in your house that are, you know, got axes and, sleeping with guns under their bed and it's just yeah it's just not something that you know i ever want to go back to and and yeah i just want to sort of have a, a normal life you know i've never i've never been normal I'm, I'm very extreme i'm either really high or really low and yeah i guess now um just with everything that's happened i've sort of hopefully um it's opened up my eyes to just just yeah being content with just being me and and, and whatever i can do not trying to compare to myself to others and that balance is important, isn't it? Like, I know you just touched on Olympics at Commonwealth Games, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that put all their eggs in that basket. They get to those highest heights and they, you know, run at that highest level or throw or jump or whatever sport it is. But then they come home and I'm sure it's pretty depressing. They might not have a university degree or a full-time job or a family or, um, you know, little involvement in their community. So when that retirement in that sport comes or when you come back from those major championships, I'm, I'm sure they feel similar with that balance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I can completely relate to that. Um, not, not making that level of competition, but the feeling of, you know, you've, you've got nothing after you've sort of put your eggs in that basket and, and yeah, I guess that would be something I'd have to be careful, you know, of if if I was to, able to to get myself a little bit little bit better at running. That, you know, I didn't set set this goal for this particular race, and then when that race is over, you know, fall back into that trap. So I can definitely relate to that. And I think now I'm just trying to build a lot of other things in my life and and have balance. And so that that way, if something happens, like I get injured, you know, I've got other things to turn to, whether it be friends or a different hobby or put my focus into work. Um, so yeah, I guess finally I've, I feel like just with, with what I've learned over all these years and all the silly mistakes I've made that, you know, if something did happen or a problem arise that you know, I've sort of got that, um, ability to sort of, um, focus and, and put myself on the right track rather than the wrong. Mm. Well, you got it yeah. early as well, didn't you? Like it's 26, you still got a, a, um, few years ahead of you to sort things out and be successful in your thirties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of do get worried. You sort of like start looking in the mirror and there's a few wrinkles on the forehead. And I mean, anyone older than me would be thinking, oh, you're young as anything. But, you know, I have sort of wasted the last eight years of my life. Um, you know, my mindset was oh, I've already wasted eight, so I'll just, I'll just, you know, continue doing what I'm doing. But, you know, now with, the, I guess, the changes that have happened and things like that, you know, I'm, I'm quite lucky. It is, it is only eight years that I've wasted. I've met people that have the same problem as me and, and they didn't get themselves together till they were 39 and 40 and 50 and you know they've, they've wasted more time than me so you know the quicker i do it the, the more uh, better and beneficial life i'm going to have so yeah hopefully as my coach would say pl plenty of time plenty of time so yeah patience that's the big thing with distance running as well isn't it time patience and consistency yeah you, you can't spell patience without pat but apparently in my head you can <laughs> Yeah, right. Hey, mate, what I always finish off with is the same question. I always ask the guests if they've got a, a mantra or a quote or a philosophy that they uh, try and live their life by. And I can imagine that you've probably had more than one in the past, but uh, where's that stop now? Have you got something that you kind of try to relate to pretty often? Yeah, I think I think probably the big picture. Um, that would that would be, you know, my mindset, you know, not, not thinking about just that short, term goal but think about the big picture and, and what you want for the future so i guess yeah that, that'd be mine at the moment mate yeah beautiful and uh 
you know, you've kind of spoken about social media and kind of keeping a low profile, but if people want to keep track of your, your journey and kind of throw their support your way, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on most of them. Um, I've got me uh, my social media privileges back. I probably upload too many photos, so I apologize to anyone that's friends with me and getting sick of my uh, my vegan food or my, my coffees that don't look too good. Um, but it's, yeah, Paddy, P-A-D-D-Y underscore 2345 on Instagram and, and just Patrick Smith on um, on Facebook. So if they want to contact me, feel free to. Beautiful, mate. Thanks for your well, time thanks. this afternoon. Um, thanks um, for being so open thanks. and thanks for being so, yeah, open I guess and... it's pretty vulnerable to put yourself out like that. And, yeah, really appreciate that you made contact to come on the show and, uh, yeah, we've finally been able to make it happen. No, nah, no worries, mate. Thanks so much for having me and I uh, look forward to, to seeing you in, uh, in February down in Hobart. Yeah, well, I think I might be even in, um, might be there mid-Jan with Cabri. I'm oh. trying to get down for, yeah, maybe just, maybe get down for something down there and do a bit of a podcast show around it and, yeah, trying to, trying to sort a few things out at the moment. Nah, perfect. Well, I think I'm actually in Ethiopia then with a the mate, but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll touch base before then anyway, mate. Oh, let's get you back on after that, talk about the experiences in Ethiopia. No worries, mate. Pleasure. Thanks, mate. See you later. Have a good one, bye.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.